You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. I am the founder of A Blog to Watch, and today we have the co-founder of Collective Horology, Mr. Asher Rapkin. Hey, Asher, how are you? I am fantastic. Thank you so much for having me here. So you represent an interesting entrepreneurial side to the modern watch industry. And I love talking to individuals like you because you pick up where a lot of the traditional watch industry sort of leaves things off because they're traditional and they're not as agile. And today, a lot of agility is necessary. And you blend retailer, collector, uh, enthusiast, consumer. You put a sort of a couple of roles into one. And again, you're going to tell us more about collective horology, but I'm just trying to give a little bit of a context here where there's a lot of unfulfilled needs, individuals that love watches, that know watches, but feel for whatever reason, the traditional retail experience, product experience, product design experience is, is, is leaving something out, is, isn't giving something you want. And so what you've done, like some others like you, even though they've done it in different ways, is you've, you've sort of made your own business idea. And, and it's all started with the idea that your watch community, your watch lover community in your town or who have similar interests of you all feel the same way. And by pooling together either your resources or your interests, it's, it's in the name collective or horology, you're able to come up with something which is mutually satisfying. Would you say that I've correctly sort of given some context or I'm missing a few crucial pieces about why you started um, this business idea? <laughs> no, actually, I'm 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 smiling over here because uh, uh, you actually managed to sum us up in a totally novel, but I think completely accurate way. So, so thank you for that. I appreciate <laughs> <Sure>. that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, we we think about collective um, in two real way, two 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 elements, right? There's community, and then there is uh, collaboration. And uh, you know, you 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 pointed out uh, how some of those elements come into play, but for us. Um, you know, over the last 10 years, we have seen the watch community grow exponentially. And, and that's driven in no small part by, quite frankly, you um, and a lot of your colleagues in the industry who, you know, I personally have learned a ton from. And I think in, in doing so has helped fuel my passion and those around us. And that's grown the community quite significantly. The The challenge in that is that while the, the community has gotten so much larger, a lot of the really close interpersonal relationships that, uh, you know, really brought us together in the beginning have become harder and harder to maintain just because there's so many more people at the party. Explain that a little bit more. Give a little bit more sort of context and clarity there. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I started getting into watches personally about 15, 16 years ago, seriously. You know, previously, I, I always sort of thought, you know, as a, as a teenager, I, I, I thought of them as sort of neat objects, but I didn't really know anything about it. Right. You know, so like I was drawn to like, you know, a Scoggin watch because I thought that, oh, my God, that has a really, you know, like the aesthetic of that watch is, is like is it looks really... nice, but I don't even know where it fits in sort of the pecking order of watches. Yeah, I, I didn't care. I was just like, that's a cool object. It's neat. I like it, you know. Um, and then as I, as I grew older and I started to, to, I, I started to really kind of question what, what it was that was driving these things. You know, my father has worn, um, 
pretty much for 30 years straight, uh, a, a 36 millimeter day chest. My grandfather, on, but my grandparents on both sides, my, my one grandfather used to uh, wear an ultra thin Vacheron, uh, which I now have. Um, my other grandfather used to wear Seamasters. And, you know, I, I always thought of those as like iconic elements of design that connected back to both of my grandparents who were very much sort of like Victorian gentlemen, you know, they always wore suits every day. Right. Um, but I didn't really think about the mechanics behind it. And when I started to get into that, and really dig into, you know, what what quite literally makes a watch tick. That's when the whole the whole thing opened up to me. And 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 I started doing that like so many other people, you know, uh, through through forums like Time Zone and then, you know, by eventually just landing on sites like a blog to watch, Odinky, SJX, etc. Um and that was a really cool thing in the beginning because I would meet people through those communities because it, it still felt 15 years ago, give or take, like, you know, being a watch nerd was this this really niche thing. And, uh, you know, if you did find somebody who recognized the watch that you were wearing on the street or at a party or or at a bar or what have you, like, it, it really felt like you both shown the bat sign at the same time and you kind of, you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, you knew what was going on. And now uh, I think because, you know, people have, have all sort of caught the bug, there are so, so many more people around, which has a positive element in the sense that, you know, diver you know, cognitive diversity is always a good thing. Lots of new opinions, lots of new perspectives, lots of new makers. Um, and then there's sort of a, frankly, a, a really terrible downside, which is that, uh, the, you know, the gates of the palace have swung open and the trolls have, have stormed in. And um, it's created a situation where, you know, for one reason or another, sometimes it can be really uh, depressing, quite frankly, to hang out in online communities. Well, let, let's let's ba let's back up a second here. Sure. You've you, you said a, a lot of really important stuff, and you've detailed a little bit about what it's like to grow up as a watch consumer in this sort of connected environment. And, and when I'm yeah. listening to what you're saying, I'm contrasting with my own experience, which is like that of many people, where I became a watch lover in a vacuum. I didn't mm -hmm. have a community until much later on, I think, you know, several years of me being a pretty, you know, dedicated, you know, interested person in watches before I ever met my first fellow watch lover. These days, people, because of social media, the internet, are able to concurrently find, quote unquote, colleagues, friends, whatever, while they're getting into it. And those two experiences result in very different outcomes. And what you're <laughs> yeah. saying is that, there's actually a ton of downsides. Like people would normally think like community, friends, support, advice, like that's supposed to all be good things. Mm -hmm. But if you are learning about watches online, it sounds like there's a bunch of dead ends, red herrings, fraudsters, um, idiots, um, <laughs> just, you know, how do you, how do you really men. feel, man? <laughs> No, it, look, it's it's like that in all categories. It doesn't matter sure. what it is. It could be, you know, computer reviews. Um, yes. But watches, if you don't understand them and you're trying to make decisions remotely, like I can't see the product and you're just reading about it, I can imagine the minefield that your well-intended, you know, novice enthusiast is up against between, I mean, look, I, I have a legal background and, you know, going into this, I'm always thinking to myself, you know, I have to be responsible and I need to make sure that I don't lie to people. And I have I have this duty to a larger community um, because I'm giving them information. But it seems like I'm like one out of a hundred. Like I, I've never met another uh, fellow lawyer, for example, sort of our age getting into this space in this way. It's people who have 
business backgrounds and things like that. And they just want to make money. They might really love watches, but it's, it's, they don't seem to have the same sense of responsibility. Am, am I talking a little bit about the types of things that you've experienced? Yeah. I mean, like, and we don't have to talk about this too much because I feel like, you know, everybody who's in the watch world kind of, or is entering it gets into this whole conversation. But part of the, the, the bummer of, of the modern online watch community is this, this obsession with like residual value and investment, <laughs> which is it's just like, it, 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 it's, it's so frustrating, you know, because ultimately the, the, the things that we love, or at least I'll speak for myself, like the, the thing that I love about watches in general is like, I think, I think of them as, as you know, art objects, you know, and art objects that you can carry with you and wear and they have a functional purpose. And, you know, it's like up there with, with you know, uh, if, if other people are in this space too, knife collecting, you know, there's like a real magical, like beauty to being able to carry a piece of art that's been made by another human in your pocket or on your wrist. And the thing is, when you introduce this idea of like, well, you know, hey, retailer X, like I want to buy this for X dollars off because I want to make sure that when I get out of it, I'm, I'm whole. It's like, what are you doing buying the damn thing in the first place? Well, let's, let's back up. Let's back up because yeah. I've talked about this extensively. I'm really glad to hear that you've also picked up on it. But let's not confuse what it is that we're talking about. This sentiment about not losing value in your purchase has honestly nothing to do with watch collecting or collecting anything. <laughs> it has everything to do with, with financial speculation and the fact that for whatever reason, watches also tend to appeal, not just to these people, but you know, people in the world of investing in finance who, yeah. who mix in their own, I don't want to call them prejudices, but their stereotypes on like and perceptions of like what you should be expecting when you buy something. They don't buy things for the enjoyment. They buy things always as an alternative asset to a stock or some other type of equity or, or, or something like that. They don't think of things for pleasure. In fact, for whatever reason, the way that they their minds are raised, that's a bad thing. And then when you had this sort of like you know, these auction houses that stole a lot of the conversation and then tried mm -hmm. to make everything look like these watches were very valuable. I mean, auction houses, the way they work, the watch specialists, they're basically like a form of a pyramid scheme. The idea <laughs> is that these watches should come back like a revolving door and each time go for a little bit more money, a little bit more money, a little bit more money. So some fancy Rolex goes for 20,000. Oh, you know what we really want to do is we really want to get that come get back in here so the next time it goes for 25,000, but while they do that, they make a percentage from the buyer and the seller. So the 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 speculator audience as well as the auction houses and those like them have created a conversation which at the very least is distracting, highly distracting from where the actual pleasure of watch collecting is. And I lament that so much. And I would even go further and say where the actual value of watch collecting is. I mean, look, like in the last few, I'd say last five to seven years, um, I've, I've my, my, my taste and my interest has really pivoted towards, you know, personally pivoted towards independent watchmakers. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that, but, but, but part of it is because I see so much, so much intrinsic value in the pieces that are designed and made by folks outside of the corporate infrastructure. And these are folks who are usually making things at, at you know, quite significant risk to themselves financially. And they're doing it on, you know, the, the, their watches might be expensive, but like nobody's getting rich on these watches. They're making them because they're compelled to. And, you know, I went to school for theater and, you know, one of the, one of the last things that, that one of my professors told me before I, I went out into the world was, hey, as an FYI, like, if you can think of literally anything else in the world to do other than theater, 
go do it because there's going to be other people out there who like don't like that's their singular vision. And when I look at like the best independent watchmakers to me, I'm like, these people, there's nothing else in the world that they could possibly be doing other than this, which means that they're cre- like that anytime you pick up one of their watches, you are holding somebody's life's work and dream in your hands. And like, that's not to me that that's, that's patronage, not speculation. And there's so much more joy and pleasure in patronage to me than there is in, in speculation. That doesn't mean that, you know, I, I think you should be a fool with your money and go out and buy damn near everything, you know, that you see and then be frustrated when you only get, you know, half of it back when you inevitably part with it because you didn't want it in the first place. But I think that if we can focus on these, these you know, like the true value of a thing, which is the, the love and the passion and the time that the maker put into it, it opens up an entirely new world of appreciation in, in watchmaking. Because how many times have you had a conversation, and, and I might be walking myself into a corner here, but how many times have you had a conversation with somebody who said, you know, I, I like this watch or I like this brand or I'm curious about it, but God, I'm going to lose so much money when I get out of it. Okay, let me, let me, I'm going to sort of play both ends of this right now because I actually Please. sympathize a little bit with the other side. So when I started all this, the idea of buying a watch to sell it didn't make any sense. You bought a watch and you're basically married to it. If you had to sell it, it was because, you know, you, you really needed money or more often there was somebody that wanted it more than you and they sort of made it worth your while to get rid of it. Now, that is, I believe, the healthiest approach, right? When you buy sure. a watch, don't be thinking about it like, oh, I'll sell it in a year, da, 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 and make it back maximum. You, you own it because you love it and, you know, you associate memories and a, a part of your life, whatever, with it. Because ultimately, when you buy a watch, you're doing it to reward yourself. It's, it's a celebration thing. That's, that's sort of one side of the argument and where I fall more. The other side of the argument, I think, is actually equally compelling if you think about it. And here's, here's, here's my point. Yes, it's bad to buy a watch just to resell it because it ends up highly, highly narrowing down the watches that you're buying, right? Because the only because res, high resaleability is related to popularity, right? So the more popular sure. it is, the more people know about it, the more people that are willing to pay for it, thus you can sell for more. But it also robs you of the opportunity to buy the sort of more um, niche watches, the less well-known ones, because there just isn't going to be that big of a market for it. That, that we know. Here's my point. We want people to sample as many watches as possible. And so the practice of buying a watch to flip it, what it ends up doing is it means that people engage in more transactions, which is good for business, and they end up have the opportunity to sample more watches. You and I know that there's very few people out there that are truly wealthy enough to have all the watches they want, right? Because there's just so many designs and cool stuff out there. But if you buy, sell, and they're able to recoup a good amount of your investment, you can then take that money and go sample something else. So, you know, like companies like 11 James tried to bank on this by having this rental program. I don't think right. it ever really worked out so well because of the economics and it's just a lot of hassles, insurance, theft, blah, blah, blah. But there's still something to be said about flipping as an avenue to expand the variety you actually ever get to wear. What do you think okay. about that? Yeah, so I think that's... You, Yes, you bring up a really good point, and you're actually you're, you're kind of pinpointing my own personal collecting style. So, to, to you know, you're you're 100 right. I, I cannot afford to keep and own every watch that I wish to experience. Um, and I'd say that uh, probably about 70 percent of my collection is in constant motion, and about 30 percent um, is is essentially permanent. Um, and the reason, and I do that, you know, on a personal level because now that uh, 
I'm spending a good portion of my time, you know, making collaborative watches. One of the best ways, in my opinion, to to make something original is to experience as many things that are that you can that are out there, different materials, different approaches, different styles, and that gives you an actual literal point of view that's based on on actual experience, an experience that you can't have unless you've lived with a thing. Right. Um, but but I think here's the key. I know that in doing this, I am that there is that there is a financial loss associated with it. Every once in a while, you're you know you're right. You know, you'll you'll move out of something and you'll you'll come back at 100 percent of what you put into it or 110 percent. But more times than not, super uh, you're rare losing money. Super exactly. Rare. And and I'm okay with that because I look at that as as an experience tax. And you know, I, I don't I don't have a problem with it. Just like I don't have a problem with uh, other people that move in and out of watches quickly. You know, because at this point, there's there's such an incredible array and uh, of, of fascinating new stuff to experience that giving yourself the freedom and the permission to to do that and to move in and out um, is a good thing. I think this concept of defining anybody who experiences multiple watches, you know, for a shortened period as a quote flipper is is kind of a bummer because that carries such a negative connotation. Because in my mind, like if you if you're losing money on the thing that you sold, you didn't flip it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Essentially you just you you sold it at a loss. But there's so much pressure because of the online communities and the quote, collective conversation that a lot of consumers don't have the internal confidence. In fact, the sad thing is, it's like if you buy a watch that loses value, you're open to people making you feel bad, right? Like, oh, you bought a watch that lost value. And that's a bad thing. The community should not be dissing you for that. The community should be like applauding. You know what? You took the risk. You bought a watch knowing that you can't resell it, but it's awesome. It's made well, and you're going to love it for years, and it's going to be appreciated. Why does the community not celebrate that behavior more often? So this is this is one of many, many, many reasons why Gabe, my my partner, and I wanted to find wanted to found Collective, which was how do we do our best to identify within a community at large folks that that are that really want to come together and and forge a relationship with one another, even if they disagree about uh, everything from aesthetics to investment style to collecting style, what have you. But the one thing that we all agree with is that you should be able to experience the art that you want to experience in the way you want to experience it. You know, and I, I think... I think we've seen this this tenor of you know uh, you know we got to kill our darlings happening in the in the watch world now for the like accelerating for the last three to five years in a way that's I, I used to find very disheartening and now I've I've kind of just learned how to hit the mute button on it and, and it's partially because you know watch I think I feel like the watch community has has a couple of these these you know Pavlovian like bells that that go off that that trigger just a torrent of nonsense, you know, like, oh my God, that's not an in-house movement. Oh, that's one Pavlovian bell, you know, or like, oh my God, like, the, you know, that they didn't build that watch entirely in-house. News, newsflash, everybody, like most people don't, you know, like all of these different things that 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 people carry having some form of intrinsic value that, that allow them to tear down something that someone has made before they've even given it a second to look at it and say, what is like, what do I actually think about this? So you know? here's something important. You and I are what I call digital natives in the sense that from not just a, a, a growing up perspective, but from a career perspective, a lot of our work began on the internet. And we sort of understand the community online a little bit better than people that are not digital natives. And we know that the internet, especially today, comes with a certain type of snark, right? There's just... <laughs> 
I don't know if it's the anonymity. I don't know if it's just people. It's, it's easier that way. But a lot of snarkiness comes out in this. And I remember that a couple of years ago, there was less snarkiness on the internet and watches. And then sort of general snarkiness invaded areas like watches. And one of the reasons I regret it so much is that for a lot of people, their watch, their watch hobby is their safe place, right? Yeah. They get to not talk about themselves. It's a thir- it, you know, it's like it's like sports for people that don't like sports. I'm not a traditional sports fan, but I could talk, you know, watch stats or or, or all that endlessly. Mm-hmm. When when the when the sort of like negatives of of outside society invade in this space, it seems very defiling, right? Like this is a protected zone. You know, everyone here loves watches, but then they start getting angry at one another. It's like, you like 39 millimeters? I like 43. <laughs> You're a bad person, bro. You're a bad person for like in that small size. And when I started seeing that, I began wondering to myself, like, what exactly is going on? Like, why is person A so angry of the like taste preferences of person B? And and again, I realized it no longer became about watches. And then you had to create and like new safe places where it's like, okay, guys, your outside prejudices and bad days, they need to stay at the door. We're just being supportive, like watch people here. Like, how do we make these conversations with people more supportive and less combative? Maybe that's the thought I'm, ha- I'm having. Well, one of those things is, is making people become self-aware when they enter a space. And, uh, you know, with Collective, we have, for our members, we have house rules. And those house rules are not overbearing, but, um, and they're probably not even terribly surprising. But a lot of them are, you know, we don't talk about politics in this group. Like, that's just not a thing. We don't, you know, we can engage in, in conversation and we can engage in, in strong discussion. But it's not okay to tell someone that they're wrong because they don't like the things that you like. Now, what's incredible is that over the two years that, that we've been around, um, we've never had a problem. And I think that's because we, you know, we, we try to do our best when when inducting new members and it is our existing membership that helps us choose the new members that come in, that we really focus on finding people that are interested in joining a community. They're not just interested in buying, you know, a, a C or a P series watch that we've made. Um, and and what that's done, I think, is really created, to your point, these these interesting safe spaces uh, like Collective and, you know, and, and I'm sure other, other you know, uh, groups and organizations out there where, where people have to make a, a definitive choice about their behavior when they come in. But I, I would also say that I don't think that that's like a unique thing. I think it's just something that we're, as a, as a community, we're evolving into. I mean, when you go to a cocktail party, there are unspoken house rules, you know what I mean? And I think as a culture, like we just know those things. We know, you know, it's like growing up, right? My parents would say, never talk about politics, sex, and religion with people you don't know. And <laughs> I think it's 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 a it's a good piece of advice, and I think you know that's a house rule. And I think for you know I think for the collective, it's just like we're, we're just as a as a community, you know, not just as a subset with collective, but as a larger watch community. I think we we are starting to evolve into being such a large cohort that we have to start applying these these golden rules to ourselves. I want to ask you a little bit about what collective is, but before I sort of want to mention again for people that are listening need a little bit more context. Mm-hmm. As a response to some of these strange social dynamics amongst people that just like watches, we have this interesting situation where we are continuing to further segment our interests and stuff like that. So what's happened is there's been sub-communities, right? There used to be just, you know, people that like watches and they go on to blog to watch and, and they all get along. But then they've realized, you know what, I have different tastes 
fundamentally than that guy over in Scotland, right? Like I live here, we both mm -hmm. like watches, but we seem to conflict all the time. And I'm sick of constantly other people not liking what I like. So what ends up happening is people find others that share their tastes, oftentimes as people happen to live in the same geographic regions, and then the collector community sort of subdivides itself in these little groups. And we've seen everything from, you know, stuff like Adam's Red Bar, where it sort of grew from city to city to very small things in Southern California. There's a couple of little groups. And all around the world, there's these little watch gangs, watch collective, watch this, watch that. You know, you have yours, you made it entrepreneurial. I think it's very fascinating that taste groups have segmented themselves off. Now, you've done a little bit more, you've had, and maybe it started as an informal community that went to a formal community. Now I want you to explain from sort of a business perspective, what is collective horology? Sure. So um, just a little, a little context. Um, my partner, Gabe and I, uh, we grew up together. I've known him since I was 12, um, went to the same middle school, grew up in the same city. And uh, we both ended up going to the same profession, ended up working in some of the same companies. We're both, uh, we both spent the last uh, 20 some odd years working in marketing or advertising respectively. And, um, you know, so I, I think when we started thinking about um, what this could be, you know, we, we sort of looked at it from, from the perspective of, of a marketer, which is, well, who exactly are we building this for and, and, and what value does it fundamentally provide? Um, and then also, you know, as, as folks that are thinking about building a business, you know, how, how do we make money and how do we do that? Honestly, like, how do we do that in a way that we feel confident? Um, and how do we do that in a way that, that overlaps? So for us, you know, our business, we, we have a, a very simple uh, rule, which is essentially a Venn diagram where every business decision that we make, and I'll explain the model in a moment, but every business decision we make has to make sense for the collective member the the collective owners us and uh the brand that we're working with and that has to be an equal value for all three and if it isn't it doesn't it doesn't work and that means we've had to walk away from some things because it, it favors one or the other too many can you give me an example sure uh if we ended up uh if we if like here every single time we sell a watch which which uh we've we've, we've made three so far we have several on the horizon um we we sell the watch for the same price to every single member but we negotiate heavily on the back end to make, uh, which usually comes quite frankly out of collectives margin to ensure that we are building a sustainable model for people that we hope will continue investing in our watches annually. Generally, we get, and, and sometimes this happens, we get sort of quizzical looks from watch brands that are like, why are you leaving you know, money on the table? This is the MSRP that we would suggest and you could make a significantly higher margin. And if we do that, then the Venn diagram goes out of whack. Then suddenly... My, you know, I'm making more money um, at the expense of my members for a service that I do not think is equivalent to that. And that doesn't scale. I really want to chime in here. I, I applaud your sort of gusto for doing that because it is true that oftentimes if you just ask the brands themselves for opinions or strategy on things like pricing and selling, what they will say will be counterproductive. Not like they're trying to screw you up. They just don't know. And so you have mm -hmm. to have the the charisma to be like, thank you for making my watch. You apparently know nothing else. I will take it from here, sir. Well, so so I think I think that that that's that's part of the the service that we want to provide to to business. So so here to tell you about the model. So uh, collective has no membership dues per se. Um, if you're a member in collective, the one thing that we ask is that you commit to purchasing one of our watches and we make uh, an independent watch series called the portfolio series and a more broadly released series called the collective series uh, annually. We ask that folks commit to purchasing uh, one of those every other year. Of course, you can 
purchase everyone if you wish, but but every other year is the is the expectation. On top of that, that generates the revenue for the company that allows us not just to operate and to to build the operating expenses that can and that can compensate us for the incredible amount of time it takes to do this work, but also gives us the opex to set up events, custom experiences, um, and things that we believe, uh, which we're going to announce in a couple of months as definitive value for members that uh, expand beyond just the watch that you're paying for. Um, the other thing that we do, uh, you know, which we don't speak about a lot, but is, is another component of the business is we, um, we do work with some brands uh, as, as uh, brand and marketing consultants. You know, Gabe and I have been doing this, as I mentioned, you know, it's our life work. We've done, you know, between the two of us, we have 40 years experience in, in branding and marketing and advertising. And uh, we, we also set, have set ourselves up as an agency to work with specific brands uh, to help them uh, connect with communities as we are building one. So it's a really interesting hybrid model of having a consumer-facing component where we're developing a community and we are... Um, uh, building products for that community. But instead of the sort of traditional model that I think some of these groups have, where you then take that group and, and while I hate the word, you, you know, quote unquote, monetize them. What we're trying to do is, is have a separate component, which is an actual brand strategy agency, which allows us to take, you know, the experiences and the things that we learn from, from the, being an active member of the community that we built and apply that to helping brands solve problems. And that together has created two diverse revenue streams, which has allowed us to grow the company. So again, I want to back up a little bit here because sure. I think that if you if you don't know about watch communities and things like that, a little bit of what you're talking about can be sort of dense. How does somebody <laughs> join Collective Horology? And then, you know, why is it what you're doing is unique? I want, I want sort of sure. you to say, and then I can add, because it, it is not the case that watch communities that you join clubs or if as formal or informal as they are are also a place to buy watches and especially in your case watches are made presumably only for club members yeah you know like explain some of those nuances because again i think that what you're doing is new and interesting enough and also you're still trying to figure it out right you're doing a little of this you're doing a little brand consulting yeah. a little of this that it's you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a work in progress, right? So just explain a little bit more about how this is very different than the other sort of less formal sure. watch clubs there are out there and how yes. people can join. Absolutely. So uh, the, way, the way it works is um, we release uh, two, as of now, we're releasing two watches a year. Um, our ambition is to increase that number uh, in the near future. But we, we release two a year um, from one series or another, which I mentioned earlier. The first one is the Collective Series, the C. We've released two of those, um, the C01 last year in 2019, which was a collaboration with Zenith. Um, uh, we reproduced in El Primero. And um, the C02, which we just released a couple weeks ago, um, which was a collaboration with H. Moser and Chi, uh, which was... Um, Essentially, a new reference um, that that was basically the missing link between their two sports lines. And uh, when we release a new watch, we invite new members to join the community by purchasing that watch. And to do so, uh, they can submit an application on our website. Now, that sentence can sound really, really, really crappy. Um, and I, I don't want to submit an application. I want yeah, to be and, invited. <laughs> I want to be like, you look cool. Come hang. Like, like to, to, to <laughs> submit an application for a club. I mean, that's like everything about like our college entrance exam things. Well, like all those horrible like memories come back. Well, allow me to explain. <laughs> so part, part of the reason why we want to do please that is- Please accept me, please. <laughs> well, listen, 
I think part, part of the reason why we do this, if not the primary reason why we do this, is that the whole, the whole business is built around finding people who are oriented towards participating in a community, not just buying watches from us. And the best way that we can discern that is by having someone tell us about themselves. And, you know, we're, we're not trying to be elitist. You know, we, we have inducted people who have no watches in their collection. They're just, they're just huge fans, you know? In fact, there's one gentleman whose first watch was the C01. He was just an observer from afar. And we have members who have um, uh, collections uh, that are, uh, you know, almost, almost museum level. But the thing is that diversity um, is what we want because you've got, you know, there's one guy in the group who's a Seiko 5 modder, another guy in the group who's a Grubel 4C collector. And the two of them, like, really, you know, ha have shared information with one another and taught one another. And I think that is the, the coolest thing. And we're never going to know that if you don't tell us about yourself. So that's the whole concept behind the application. And, you know, I think we've struck a chord um, and, and I'm, I'm extraordinarily humbled by, by the demand. You know, the, the total number of applications that we received uh, on this last cycle around the C02 far, far, far exceeded the number of watches that we would have had to sell. And that was a pretty crazy thing. That is nice. So where, where, where are the meetings held and where are most of the people? Is this a global thing? Because you're in, you know, you're in the you're in the Bay Area in California. Yeah. Is that where? Is this a regional thing? I just I no, just we're actually not. We're actually not in the Bay Area. We we were founded in Oakland, uh, California, okay. but um, we are actually based in Ventura, California. Okay, and okay. Um, so you're even closer to LA. Yeah, and uh, in fact, we we uh, literally uh, just opened our office here in Ventura uh, today. My, uh, my partner and I have, have uh, hurt our backs putting together a whole bunch of Ikea schmerborgs or whatever, trying to get <laughs> things, you know. Uh, Could you imagine running, you went but, to Ikea and they had like a watch box there? Like what, what like <laughs> the Ikea design or price of a watch container? Like it, it, it's not inconceivable, right? Like I've always oh, thought about man. that. I, w I wish they would because I'm not going to pay two grand for a Momova one, but that's a whole other question. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, what was I saying? So, uh, uh, yeah, so, so we, we initially, initially, our core membership was California-based, but we have, over the last few cycles, grown uh, significantly, so much so that we actually have a couple of, um, uh, you know, hubs. We have uh, several folks in the Midwest, a good portion in New York, and growing um, a good chunk in London and a couple in Australia. And, um, you know, we're, we're really thinking uh, and have some some plans for next year to continue to grow and, and uh, grow those communities in some of those different areas. Because, you know, pre-COVID, we did do um, some pretty unusual events, and, and, and that's really kind of what we're, what we're trying to build. Uh, but, of course, that would be limited to people who either live in that area or want to travel to that area. And we want to make sure that members who aren't based in California have access to that sort of thing. Um, and that those and that those events that we create are also tailored to the unique tastes of someone who might live in London versus somebody who lives in in the Bay Area or or the Los Angeles area, um, and that's so that's something that we're strategically building out for the future. Um, but no, we're, I think there's this this concept that because you know my partner and I came from Silicon Valley that like this is a Silicon Valley club, and that could not be further from the truth. Okay, that's good to know. Now. Let's let's focus on the watches themselves. Sure. Right now, you're a few watches into it. You have more on the plate. To say we want to make custom designs for a small order that is only available to our club members, 
I think people can wrap their minds around that. That makes sense. What I want you to talk about is a little bit about how you pitch this to brands and what some of their, you know, what some of the sticking points are, where it could be more difficult than you thought it was. And also, you know, how do you decide on the designs? Obviously, everyone has their own quirky tastes, but you want other people to like it as well. Tell me a little bit about how you go into the process of thinking, what will our club members want to buy? We build watches that are driven by a core concept or idea. So I'll tell you, like, you know, one of one of my horological idols is Max Booster. And, and, and part of the reason why I love what, what Max does and has built is that every single watch that, that MBNF has made has a singular and unique and obvious point of view. There's a concept. And for us, you know, with every watch that we've done to date and every watch that we're planning to do, there's a core idea. And that idea doesn't necessarily revolve around you know, moving the, the, the aesthetic chess pieces around on the board. And I think that's where we run into sometimes our, our initial challenges with some potential partners where, you, you know, you'll approach and say, I'm really interested, you know, manufacturer X in, in building this kind of a watch. And they go, cool. And immediately you get an email, which is an existing watch with a dial color change. And then it's kind of like, okay, what do you guys think? Ready to place the order? <laughs> you right. know, and I think, you know, for us, what, what we've learned is when we go, when there's a, a manufacturer that we're really excited or a watchmaker that we're really excited to, to work with, um, you know, we, we, we pitch them um, as we would a client in the advertising world around a specific idea and the watch is the result of that. And you can tell very quickly from those initial conversations, if you're going to have a really strong partner who kind of just, you know, like the light bulb goes off and they're like, oh my God, I get it. That's awesome. Or a partner that's like, yeah, that's just, that's just not what I, what I do. Like, I don't, I don't get it. So there's, there's, there's several people that we've approached and pitched and, um, you know, it just, it, it, it didn't, it didn't click. I mean, look, these, these are people from a different world. You might, you know, think that you have a lot in common with them, but the reality is, People who grew up in the Swiss watch industry and people like us living in California, we probably have less in common than we have in common. Well, yeah. And in fairness to them, like it's a lot of work. I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to go and say, you know, hey, I want to I want to make this watch and I want to turn the dial red. Like, oh, OK, there's like a setup cost to that. But then essentially, you know, it's it's straight margin for the business and that's that. And everybody's, you know. It, everybody's copacetic. It's all good. But when you go to someone and you're like, I, I don't want to just like change one thing on the, on the dial. Like I have, I have an idea. I want you to be part of that idea because you're a watchmaker. You're a watch designer. You, you can help translate the, the concept into something, you know, that, that, that exists in the design language of your brand, you know, which I would never presume to, to speak on in the way that you could. And that requires time and energy and partnership and meetings and money and all sorts of stuff that even though, yeah, sure, it'll result eventually in, you know, a, a significant order size, it's still a lot of work. So, you know, I, I applaud and I am, I am indebted to and grateful to folks, you know, like, like Ed Milan and, and Mike Margolis at, Mo, you know, on, at Moser and, and, you know, Terry over at uh, Zenith and, you know, Josh Shapiro, like these are all guys who, who were willing to, to, to partner and to be creative and to, and to make something special. What's and, different about, cause again, LVMH, you know, at Zenith, they were very open-minded to it at Moser. Um, obviously they're known to do that. 
when you've had the conversations with brands that will and won't play ball, mm-hmm. what do you feel is fundamentally different at that brand or in the mentality which says, which has someone say, I'm open-minded. This community obviously knows what they like. I should do what a watch, damn, watch brand does best and design or produce for a particular need or purpose versus those people that are a little bit more standoffish, may come across as being lazy or cheap. They're like, oh, we don't want to invest. What's what's the fundamental business mentality which is different between company A and company B? I'm, I'm trying to think of, I've never I've never really thought of it in that way. I, I Anyone, they, they can all do it if they want to. It's I think it's a motivational issue. Yeah, well, I think it's it's a question of like, is it worth it, right? I mean, part of what we what we try to do when we launch one of these watches is to put the effort and the elbow grease in to announce it, to, to share it with the world and to market it. And I think some brands see that as having, you know, additional added value, so to speak, for, for making the effort and the time to, to develop a watch that, that for, for, you know, a community that essentially is pre-sold. Um, but I think the brands that, that, that don't quite dial into it are just, they're just thinking in, and, and I can't really blame them for this. They're just thinking of it as a numbers game. You know, it's like, ah, geez, I'm going to make 50 or a hundred of these pieces. You know, here's my wholesale cost. And, and, and I also just recently told an authorized dealer, you know, in the region that like, I wasn't going to make something for them. So I have the politics of, of managing what I'm doing for whom and for how much money and how many units. And am I getting, you know, is this really helped me hit my quota? You know, and, and those are all legitimate questions, but they're not tied to they're not tied to, to watchmaking. They're tied to to profit and loss. So some people care about short term, I'll call them personal career interests, and others seem to care about contributing to the world of fine watches. Yes, and I don't think that you can, but I don't think you can categorize it by like big company or small company. No. Um, by way of example, you know, we have a the C we have we have we have a C series watch that's coming up from a manufacturer that makes hundreds of thousands of watches a year, and they've been a fabulous partner that's invested a ton of time and a ton of energy. You know, so I I don't think that, and they're owned by a massive holding company. So like, I don't think that that they, I don't think that you can say that like, oh, you know, just a big company is, is not interested in this or a small company needs to do it. It really, really depends on the personality of the organization. And, you know, what we're, what we're looking for are the people that, that are excited by that idea and that they see the potential in, 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 in partnering with a community and they see the potential and the opportunity in making something really special and unique and that makes money. Versus somebody that's like, I know I need to make money and this will help me meet my quota. Is it worth, is the juice worth the squeeze? And for some much, much, much larger companies, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But One some of, the of them things, do have that element. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you're able to pick up on that stuff. I, I, I like when people talk about it because I think the motivations about how the, the, the luxury watch brands make decisions is, is unknown to a lot of people. And, and at the end of the day, yeah, it's, it's, can I make a quick buck, a quick return on this? And what I want to add to that is that a lot of the watches that you and I love or that many people love were not initial successes over time or initial successes. It took time for them to penetrate the market and for people to be comfortable with them. You know, I like to bring up the Royal Oak, for example, is a great example. Yeah. And it was for years and years and years, it was, it was a loser. And so if Audemars Piguet tried to come out with the Royal Oak in today's environment, they'd be like, this is a disaster. We should never keep going with this. It just takes time to penetrate the market. It's literally a number of years. And so I feel that the watch industry today 
is robbing itself of those future icons by hyper-focusing on what can get me a buck right now. I Again, there's there's so many nuances to the economics on their side that you and I will, will never know or be privy to, but it does seem like what helped the watch industry get to where it is by looking long-term is not entirely absent, but quite rarefied today. And I don't know what type of legacy a lot of the brands are creating for themselves right now. And that that worries me. What do you think about that? Well, I think that the brands that are going to continue to find success are the ones that are exploring alternative sales models that put them in closer relationship with their communities. So, for example, um, you know, t- take a gigantic watch brand like like Rolex, you know. Rolex does not have a relationship with its consumers. Um, Rolex has a relationship with its wholesalers and, um, or retailers rather, excuse me. And, you know, I, I think that they, they, think, they think about their, the end user all the time in the designs that they make, but the experience of owning and buying a Rolex is removed from their, their world. Like that's just not what they think about. So they, they don't they don't they're not connected to the communities in a way that um, smaller watch brands or or even you know some larger watch brands that do a great job of this like IWC for example are, and part of that is because you know IWC's boutiques are owned by Richemont largely and that that creates you know a direct line to the consumer, but it's also because they're learning that not only is there an incredibly high value to the feedback loop of being able to to connect directly with your customer, but if you can, if you really understand what that customer wants, you can start pivoting your brand to really building for them. And then not, and then that opens up a whole new world of creativity and and opportunity and experience. And I think what's so cool, you know, about collective when I, when, when Gabe and I bring an opportunity, you know, a partnership to a brand is to say, what is the, like, here's the concept that we want to build. Like, forget about, like, the money and the, the production costs and the suppliers and the molds and all the stuff of the operation of it. What do you want to make that brings this idea to life? And when you do that, there's, this, there's just this, like, magical link that happens between the, the end user and the brand, where the brand gets just so excited about the thing that they're making, because there's nothing more exciting than making something for someone that you know they're gonna want, which is different than the way that the watch world has largely worked for decades, where it's like, we're gonna make a thing that we that we think you guys want, and we're gonna sell it real hard. Yeah. And it's it's like it's a very different, it's a subtle, but it's a very significant difference in 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 the way that these new alternative sales channels are built versus the way that the traditional AD model and, and wholesale model has thrived for, for so long. And is evolving, right? Because there's no one model right now that, I'm not saying that makes money, but that is, is, is a replicable model that a brand can say, it worked for this outfit, you know, maybe it'll also work for us. Yeah, they're, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. Like, like here, I'll give you an example. Like think about um, our, our mutual friend, Rob Kaplan. Yeah. You know, uh, of Topper Jewelers. You know, Rob Rob has made two really fabulous Oris collaborations. And those two Oris collaborations, you know, total probably, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I'd have to imagine like 200, 300 watches. But the halo effect of those collaborations have dramatically changed Bay Area perception of Oris as a brand. 
So it, it's creating these different tentacles of connection where it's like, I really, really loved, you know, the, the maxi that Rob made or the, the no date 60 diver 65 that he made years ago. Um, and because I'm into those sorts of things, I'm willing to like dive into no pun intended, the rest of, excuse me, the rest of the, um, uh, Oris catalog. So these brands that are willing to like put these, these, these tendrils out into the collector community, whether it's through, you know, direct events or, or through, uh, uh, collaborative pieces, are, are firming up the relationships that have value for the rest of their stock line. I think the brands that resist that run the risk. I don't think it's true for everybody, but I do think they run the risk of alienating themselves from their communities because they appear so aloof or could appear. Well, so look, aloof. I mean, it's interesting because when you say that that relationship with Topper Jewelers, you know, near San Francisco made Oris more popular in the Bay Area. I, I I believe that that's true. But what's funny is I don't know that Oris themselves as a company will ever be able to pick up on that unless it's sort of, you know, handed to them with proof and and, and here's all the data. Like, it's funny because that could be very, very real, but the yeah. brand themselves could just easily never, never know that. Even if, even sure. if Topper is trying to be like, hey, Oris, look how, look how, how, look how much more popular you are in, you know, uh, in, in the West Coast now. They wouldn't really know what to make of it. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the advantages come for groups like you is that brands just simply aren't paying attention. You have an opportunity. The final question um, yeah. I want to I ask before we end this great chat is tell us a little bit about some of the watches that Collective Horology has already made. When I say like explain the design, maybe the price points, mm -hmm. um, what the stories were, and then, you know, you know, hint a little bit as to as what's <laughs> coming next. Sure. So we've made three watches to date. Um, the first was the C01, which was uh, our first watch. Uh, it was in partnership with Zenith, and it was an El Primero. And the concept was, uh, and this is probably why people associate us so closely with Silicon Valley, was how, you know, we wanted to create the reductive tech-oriented uh El Primero, that essentially was if a modern Silicon Valley product designer was going to approach an iconic watch like the El Primero, what would that look like? And that's where we ended with this, uh, ended up with a, a very matte monochromatic, no date 38 millimeter um, El Primero. And we made 50 of those uh, uh, and they were sold at uh, the same MSRP as at the time, uh, the, the El Primero, which was six. Which I think is a smart thing to do. I hate when people yeah. try to increase the price too much. It's not fair. Actually, to be fair, we increased the price by 50 bucks. It was $6,850. Well, <laughs> again, you know what I'm talking about. Some people yeah. are like, oh, that's a $3,000 premium for sure. Like, no. I hate that. No, it was $6,850. The second watch that we did um, was the start of our portfolio series, which is a much smaller run with an independent watchmaker. And that was with a gentleman named Joshua Shapiro of JN Shapiro Watches, also SoCal. I know um, him, yes. He is a wonderful guy, super sweet man, and also a, a really impressive autodidact. Um, you know, and uh, for him, you know, we, we we wanted to do a piece with him and we we were challenged, you know, the challenge we had to him was we want to make something that not only showcases the beauty of, of engine turning, but does so in a way that is, um, I, that is horologically unusual. Um, and Josh being the, the crazy magician that he is, uh, created uh, the P01, which is um, a, a watch made of, uh, or a watch made with a engine turned meteorite dial, which so far as we have been able to tell is the first time that's ever been commercially made available. Um, and we made 10 of those um, and those sold for, depending on the configuration of the, of the uh, metal of the case between 21,000 to $31,000. 
Um, and the third piece, which we just released, is the C02. That was done with, uh, with H. Moser and Chi. The concept that we applied there was um, twofold. We wanted to, one, create a rarefied travel watch. Gabe and I travel a ton um, for collective and for our work in general. So that means that we're constantly in airline lounges and, you know, we're just sick of seeing uh, GMT masters on every wrist. No offense to a favored, favored brand. <laughs> but um, it's like, come on, guys, let's have some diversity here. So we wanted to create a tool watch that was forward thinking, that did not feel like it was hanging on to, to vintage uh, uh, requirements as so many modern steel tool watches are. And we also saw an interesting design opportunity to marry the the clearly Moser but still distinct design languages of their two uh, sports watches, the Pioneer and the Streamliner, which resulted in what we have here, which is a watch that um, that borrows from design elements from each, but still comes together in a cohesive, unique, and uh, never been done before for Moser, uh, a rotating uh, bezel, uh, dual time zone travel watch. Um, that uh, is available and is now, we did a run of 50. It is also sold out um, and it was $15,900, um, but it included uh, the stainless steel bracelet. So it's uh, priced actually about uh, $4,000 below a stock streamliner and about $1,500 more than a stock Pioneer on uh, on strap. And um, for the amount of new elements that had to be built for this particular watch, almost all of that additional cost went into the the production elements of it. And to answer your question about what's coming. What is coming? We have two watches in the works. Um, the C3, which is uh, uh, scheduled for fall of 2021. It will be a longer run. Um, and that run um, will be about 100 watches. Uh, it will be ideally priced uh, more competitively under 10 grand. Don't hold me to that, but that's my hope. Um, and with a much larger manufacturer. So we're very excited about that. And then um, the P2, uh, so our next independent watch uh, partnership is also in the works right now. It is a quite literally wild idea with a really wild watchmaker um, who uh, it, it, I, I have to say it, it is, it, I'm like pinching myself out of excitement to get to work with, uh, with, with, with this particular manufacturer and, um, that is scheduled hopefully for around summer of next year. And it'll be a run of about 15 watches, but um, probably somewhere between uh, $50,000 to $60,000. So qu quite a quite a, a significant price point. But um, uh, it, it, it will, if, if you're interested in the topic area of the watch, and I know I'm being vague, but if you're interested in the topic area of the watch, uh, it, it's going to be something that I, I hope will inspire folks um, and, and just get them super giddy, childhood excited about uh, the concept behind it. I love the enthusiasm, and I think that everyone can relate to the fact that a nice watch is great. A nice watch with a great story can be sublime. And that's exactly what we're aiming for. So thank Asher, you. Thank you so much for coming on Superlative Podcast and chatting about watches and talking about collective horology. We'll have to have you back soon. And uh, I encourage everyone, is there a website? How do people learn more about yes, Collective Horology? Uh, you can uh, follow us on Instagram at, uh, at Collective Horology, or you can uh, learn about all of our collaborations in detail uh, at collectivehorology.com. Wonderful. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. 
for questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?